0: So, uh, Justy, you want to see Toy Bean. Did other people? What'd you think?
1: Um, well, I didn't know he was Irish, first of all.
0: Calm Toy Bean. No, it's just. <laughs> why would you think that? <laughs> um,
1: I I thought, actually, what Professor McCauley said was pretty accurate. He had a really impressive style that was very, very engaging. Yeah. And even, even though it's. For all intents and purposes, the things, especially the second part of the story where you're talking about them kind of burying the, the dresses at sea. Of was Constance
0: like, Fenimore Wolfson.
1: Was really. His economy of language is extremely impressive. Yeah. And he also doesn't help that, I mean, doesn't hurt that he has, you know, a really spectacular voice.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I liked him a lot more than I thought I would. Um, so I regret. What? No, because of you. Because of me? Is that true? <laughs> yeah, are you telling the truth? No. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Okay, good. I would, I would much prefer it if that weren't true, just Just so you know. It wasn't true at all. <laughs> <laughs> See, the, re- the real trick, it's always the real trick in life, is to say something that is both happy and true. Um, that's the hard thing. Either is easy. One of the two is really easy, um, but both is hard. Um, were you a toy bean did I see you there no Um, uh, well they recorded it so I'm sure you'll go rushing to the library now to hear it Um, one for me one's water and one's coffee I'll take the coffee you can have the water Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I didn't pay for either, so it's fine (laughs) how'd you do that Nobody charges
1: me around here. You work I work in dining services. Oh, whoa, well. I'll
0: well, pay um, for anything. <laughs> I'll give you a tray. And <laughs> I don't think it works quite like that. <laughs> um, there was that 30 Rock, I think it was a 30 Rock episode where uh, someone got a lifetime gift card to, Yeah. what was it? Uh, Carvel. To Carvel, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and they used it up. <laughs> Um, Because it was just ice cream for everyone. (laughs) They they weren't clear on the concept. Um, Yeah, so it it was interesting um, partly because his reading voice was just perfect. Um, And um, it became one of those cases where if you hear it in his voice, I generally don't like to hear things in people's voices. and I think part of what writing is about is not hearing things in people's voices. But I may bring in, Merrill was an incredibly good reader, and I may bring in a recording of him reading a little bit from the Book of Ephraim. Um, um, he, Merrill was also an incredibly good mimic, and he could do the voices of uh, the different characters, including Auden, um, uh, really well. Um, but there are people where you should hear their voices and people where you shouldn't. And um, Toy Bean, I think you should. Partly because it turned out um, in the Q&A, or at least in the um, conversation that he had with Kathy Lawrence, um, uh, that his relation to um, England um, and Henry James's relation to England um, were uh, was something that he was thinking about really hard. Um, James himself coming from an Irish family, but a Protestant Irish family, Irish Presbyterian, Going to America, which is what lots of people in Ireland from Ireland did, but then James returning to England, um, and um, all sorts of complexity and complication because of that. Um, Wasn't he American in some way? He was born in James was born in America. I believe his father was. In fact, I'm certain his father was Henry James Senior um but his family came to america from ireland the generation before that they were actually once i believe that james's grandfather i think it was his grandfather i'm pretty sure it was his grandfather was um for a while the richest man in america um and then james's father lost all their money um, James's father just spent all his time reading and writing philosophy. and he's actually um, not an uninteresting um, intellectual figure, Henry James Sr. Um, but uh, all the money disappeared, um, which is one reason that um, Toy Bean was uh, talking about James's terrible play. It's actually not that terrible, but it is terrible, um, called Guy Domville, um, which got booed off the stage. And uh, the reason James was writing a play Is that that's where the money went That's where the money was Was in theater It's like movies now well, And according to Colm Because he wanted more Than just He wanted to see his audience Yeah Yeah That I'm not sure how true that is um, You can't really trust James's letters um, Which people do um, Because James was an incredibly social person He was also incredibly private That's what Toybean was Was uh Pushing on the privacy part of James Which is right But he was also incredibly social um, He dined out 300 nights a year That is he went to people's houses For um, for um, parties Dinner parties 300 nights a year oh um, And What that means is Figuring out the relation of his Intense privacy to his Intense sociability Is a kind of hard thing to do And I think what Toybean May have done too much of in the book. I mean, what was striking about the readings he did yesterday were they were great, but they didn't sound at all like Henry James. And it was like someone not Henry James writing a novel about someone like Henry James. Um, And you would think that James would be incredibly well defended against anyone who was not, who didn't write like Henry James writing about him. Um, But, um, um. what that meant was that Toybean was using a kind of social, public, um, what people are like to other people kind of narrative language to talk about um, James when he was alone and um, private. Um, and so, you know, there's a little bit of a ghost story in it with the um, really dazzling scene, the second one that he read about... Um, the first one that he read just sounded like all the biographies, um, but the second scene that he read where... Um, James's a friend of James's killed herself um, in Venice. She jumped out of a window in Venice and killed herself. And um, uh, James went to. Um, James was shocked by this. It's a terrible event in his life. Um, uh, one of the one of the most terrible events. And he went to um, gather her belongings and found himself left kind of doing it alone, and he and his um, servant um, decided they had to get rid of her clothes, and so they, what they did is they went out into the Adriatic Sea um, to sink them. Um, they didn't know what else to do. Um, and um, the scene of them trying to get the clothes to stay underwater um, is, is really spooky and really wonderful, and um, Toy Bean, you know, obviously invents it all. I think the doing that he just heard that this happened. Someone mentioned this. The servant actually mentioned this in a radio interview that they did this, and then Toybean invented the whole scene out of that. Um, and that was a ghost story kind of scene. You know, that was that was that had a Jamesian ghostliness about it. Um, it also really interestingly refers back to something in Wordsworth, which Toybean didn't talk about. But there's um, um, a scene of a drowning in Wordsworth's Prelude. Um, which um, I think he also had in mind. Um, all right, we were in section I. Um, yeah. What? So The
1: Changing Light of Sandover is the collection of these, but then what's yours?
0: The Divi- Divine Comedies, which is a hard book to get, but worth getting. All these poems are available. What happened was, um, after he died, uh, there are two big volumes of James Merrill. One is... Is The Changing Light at Sandover, and the other is his collected poems, except for The Changing Light at Sandover. This book, Divine Comedies, has, um, I thought it was nine, three, why can't I count nine? Yeah, nine short poems, short ish, one of which is in the Norton Anthology, the one called Lost in Translation, which is a pretty amazing poem. Um, One of which is the kimono, which is the one that I read to you. Keep talking while I change into the pattern of the stream, bordered with rushes, white on blue. Um, One is The Will, which is the one where he tells how he lost the novel in a taxi. Um, And section A says, C.F. The Will. Um, All of these poems, although they are all standalones, in one way or another, they raise thematic issues that are going to be picked up by the book of Ephraim. So this book has an integrity that's been lost and it's not a major loss but it's been lost when he decided to publish the whole thing as a trilogy, The Changing Light at Sandover and then his literary executors after he died um, put all the other poems into the other book and um, the one thing that's lost in <coughs> essentially is this table of contents would allow you to reconstruct how this book first came out. Um, But just to give you an example, I I know your hands up, Ben, but um, a poem I used to teach a lot and people love, but there just isn't um, enough, there's just no time, is a poem called McCain's Falls. Um, And I'll just read you the end of it. Um, It's um, basically, um, it's about two gold miners and um, the stream that they pan for gold in. Yeah, I'm going to read you two sections from it. Section one, um, there's an introduction, then. Section one is um, the stream itself talking. And the stream says in a sonnet, Since being gelded of my gold, Gray moods, black moods come over me. Where's my old sparkle? Of late I felt so rushed, so cold. Am I riding for another fall? Will I end up at the power station on charges? A degenerate? Have my spirit broken in a cell? Must I grow broad and dirty-minded, serving a community, a nation, by now past anybody's power to shock? Doctor of locks and dams, the deltas blinded, the mudfish grins. How do I reach the sea? Help me! No, don't touch me. Let me be. Um, so notice that the idea is the stream's been gelded of its gold, so it loses its sparkle. Now black and gray moods come over it. Riding for a fall, that is a waterfall. <coughs> if you're riding for a fall, so you're going to so, get into trouble. That's what it means when you say to someone, boy, you're riding for a fall. In this case, it'll be a waterfall, which will then be used for hydroelectric power. That is, will I end up at the power station, like the police station, but the power station on charges?
1: Yeah.
0: The, uh, bo- yeah. A degenerate, have my spirit broken in a cell? That would be a battery, a dry cell Um, Okay, and then the last part of the poem Which is just spectacularly beautiful um, Come live within me, said the waterfall There is a chamber of black stone High and dry behind my stunning life Stay here a year or two, a year or ten Until you've heard it all The inside story deafening but true or false, I'm not a fool. Moments of truth are moments only, eyes burning on the brink of empty beds. The years wink past, the current changes course. Ruined by tin pan blues, the golden voice turns gravelly and hoarse. Now you've seen through me, sang the cataract, a fraying force but unafraid. Plunge through my bath Of plus and minus both Acid and base The mind that mirrors And the hands that act Enter this inmost space Its lean illuminations Decompose Suns, rose, wash on the wall Moon clinging like the perils of Pauline God knows I haven't failed her yet And yet how far away they seem How small Get me by heart my friend and then forget forgive these bones their hollow end this amulet its wearer who atones all things in time grow musical how can you live without me while I live come live within me said the waterfall so it's um, worth many readings and worth teasing out but just the I think a first reading you should be able to hear just the beauty of that all things in time grow musical Um, so when you get to the end of the book of Ephraim and you look at the ancient ageless woman of the world she's seen us she is not particular everyone gets her injured musical why do you no longer come to me to which there's no reply for here we are Um, so these poems have a particular relation to the book of Ephraim. Um, if you want, I'll just scan the table of contents and put it up on Latte, um, and so so you can um, put them together at when and if you like. Ben, you were going to.
1: Yeah, I, actually, but I just wanted to stop you before we got too far into this poem. OK. Uh, about, sort of about the book assignment Yes. In section Q. Yeah. I was looking at the, the third book by uh, Maya Darren. Yes. I, I looked into it, and apparently there's a book it yes. always says Divine Horseman. Career. Yeah, that's the name of the book. There's a book and a movie. Yeah, both you of d- which start with Divine Horseman, but the second half is different.
0: Yeah. Uh, so the movie. She theory. was a. Remember, she's the doyen of our, our of our experimental film. She's a filmmaker. You can get. They have Maya Darren's films in the library. Yeah. Um, is it
1: worth? My question was, is it worth my time
0: to yeah, watch the movie? I think it is. Well, it's it's actually a bunch of movies. They're all short. Um, it's not one
1: movie of the, under this time.
0: It is, but I think that movie is, if I recall correctly, it's about 20 minutes long. Oh, um, I don't remember, but I think it is. <laughs> I don't have two hours. So. Um, but um, there's also the movie Ritual and Transfigured Time, which um, J.M. describes, which is also on that on that DVD. Um, that's the one. Do people remember this description? It's um, I think it's an L. Um, no, it's not. Uh, it's an M. Um, which we'll look at but um, this is uh, the second page of M um, the last paragraph Film buffs may recall the closing scene of Maya's ritual in transfigured time and then here's a description of what happens in that movie and it's a very accurate one The young white actress, gowned and veiled in black walks out into a calm, shining sea it covers her. Then, downward on the screen, feet first in phosphorescent negative, glides her stilled person. So do people know what he would mean by phosphorescent negative? This is this is knowledge that will be lost very soon. But do people know what negatives are? Yeah. What are they? Uh,
1: it's for film, when you take a picture, it's the opposite, because when you develop it, um, the dark light parts of the film will mm-hmm. get dark and the dark parts of the film will get light. Yeah. Because
0: yes. the dark parts block the light from the like, like a mirror thing. Also. Yeah, it's a it's a reversal of the spectrum. Um and in black and white photos and all her movies are black and white, mm-hmm. it's just a reversal of light and dark. So ha- everyone knows that? Is this st- something that you all have have you ever seen negatives? They must I've, be reproduced I in I did, I
1: did I took a class on black and white photography, so I worked in a dark room developing negatives.
0: Yeah. Um, people know what Dark Room is? Yeah, they're in movies um, So, um, yeah, so what happens in the movie Is that the young white actress um, The film turns into um, a projection of its negatives The, wh- the young white actress um, Gowned and veiled in black Walks out into a calm, shining sea It covers her Then downward on the screen Feet first in phosphorescent negative Glides her stilled person A black bride Um, So a bride to herself, her own negative is a bride to herself, but also a bride to Urzuli. Who is Urzuli? Do people remember? So go back to D, because Urzuli is actually important. Um, If you look um, at Darren, Eleonora, Maya, 1917 to 61, Doyen of our American experimental film. People know what the word Doyen means? Just said Doyenu. I'm not even going to look it up. Mm-hmm. Um, Doyen is the feminine form of Dean, so it's basically the um, leader of this movement. Um, so if she were male, she would be Dean of our experimental, of our American experimental film. But she's um, properly you say Doyen for a woman. Um, Doyen of our American experimental film. Mistress, moreover, of a lifestyle not for 20 years to seem conventional. That is, not until the 70s would she seem conventional when everyone lived that way. Fills her village flat with sacred objects, dolls, drums, baubles that twirl and shimmer, stills from work in progress, underfoot the latest in a lineage of big, black, strangely accident-prone Haitian cats... Dresses her high-waisted, maiden-breasted person, russet afro, agate eyes, in thrift shop finery, bells on her toes, barefoot at parties, dances, is possessed. See her book on voodoo, Divine Horseman, during a ceremony, 1949, by Urzuli, the innocently lavish, laughing, weeping, perfume-loving queen among the Loa, or divinities. So, in a voodoo ceremony, she goes into a trance state, which is what those ceremonies are about, and what that movie's is about. Um, and you know that her film on um, on voodoo actually um, is screened in Anthrope courses um, because it's one of the first docu- um, documents about um, trance states, voodoo, going into trance states in Haitian ritual. Um, this was one of the first films to document that. Um, so she does it herself, and she's possessed by Urzuli, who is the innocently lavish, laughing, weeping, perfume-loving queen among the Loa or divinities. So the word Loa means the Haitian divinities. Urzuli is actually a very complex figure, and if you read what Maya Deren has to say about her, um, J.M. is only taking one of her um, aspects and describing her this way. Um, she is voodoo. You may know is a syncretic religion. Do people know um, that about voodoo? It's a mixture of African and Catholic um, idea, religious ideas. Um, and so Urzuli is also um, connected to the Virgin Mary. In um, any analysis of voodoo, you will, you, you'll see that a lot of Marian um, legends um, apply to Urzuli uh, as well. Um, but so, yeah, the quotation... About the divine horsemen are the Loa, and we are their horses. That's um, uh, the point of the title of her book. So, yeah, it's worth looking at. Also, worth looking at the ritual in Transfigured Time so that um, she is a black bride to Urzuli. Worth mentioning as well, maybe that, quote, white darkness, unquote, her own phrase which Maya felt steal up through her leg from the dirt floor during the ceremony in whose course Urzuli would ride her like a horse." So suddenly we get a kind of um, crude pun or crude um, image. Urzuli um, is the divine horse person, but riding her like a horse um, essentially means having sex with her, um, covering her like a horse. So all of these things come together. We'll get back to Maya's dream, but let's just finish. We're still trying to figure out all the things that Ephraim could be. We looked at how um, he worries that their code can be break into smithereens and how that is setting up a series of images here which actually have to do with the dangers of um, radioactivity and of nuclear war, um, of um, what's happening to the environment, which is um, a large theme in the book of Ephraim, um, and the genetic damage that it's doing. So here's a book about reincarnation, but it also turns out to be, to quote section F, which is one of the great sections, Narcissus bent above the gene pool. Um, Narcissus bent above the pool, what's that a reference to? Legend of (laughs) Narcissus. Yeah, in which he is always, always staring at his own reflection. And falls in love with his own reflection in a pool of water. Yeah. Sorry? And then well, then and pines away. away and dies. Sorry? I was just away. Wastes away and dies um, and turns into a flower. Um, so Merrill takes that as what we did was Narcissus bent above the gene pool. Um, seeing ourselves reflected in the gene pool, well, that would be an idea of what a standard view of having children is about. It's the view of Shakespeare in the first 20 sonnets, which is, you are old, you must die, but you can perpetuate yourself in the children who reflect you. That's the only way to immortalize yourselves. Um, yourself, he says to the young man in that document of gay or homoerotic love. Um, so, the, so why do people have children? Well, out of narcissism. Um, they gaze at themselves in the gene pool. Um, so that's um, part of, um, again, a whole train. I mean, the, the weaving together of different um, thematic uh, strands of imagery in the Book of Ephraim is something that we're only scratching the surface of. On in the mirror that is this book, um, but again, if you think of narcissus bent above the gene pool, think of the genes as like scratches in the mirror. that is, you see the perfect circle of the reflection of your own light in these little alleles everywhere. you know just think of any representation of genes they're always represented as as scratch like things. Um, not DNA, but genes. They're always their pictorial representation is always scratch-like. So Narcissus bent above the gene pool is seeing his own reflection in its perfect circle perfection, um, simply among all the randomness of um, human traits or primate traits, since that's the section about Miranda. Who is who? Who's Miranda? She's the chimp, um, Miranda the chimp. Um, and um, so so. looking at your reflection in the gene pool, well, that's, that's where humans find meaning. In others, you could say, in being human. But if the gene pool is being mutated beyond recognition by agents breaking your code to smithereens, um... Well, that's one of the dangers that calls for the boldest prose reportage. The baldest prose reportage. Yeah, Ben.
1: I mean, I I kind of read it as a narcissist bent over the gene pool is mankind enamored with our um, our knowledge and mastery over genetics. Yeah. The kind of thing that leads
0: to, you know, the eugenics project. Right. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's always (coughs) both and and Merrill. And yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, that could also have explanation.
1: Also works for the breaking agents breaking the code because um, once you understand like how genes work then you can start to manipulate like, them.
0: Right, exactly, um, and this is just the beginning of recombinant DNA um, research is going on just then. Yeah, no, Oh, Okay, so um, we now scare him with flippancies. Do you want to lose me? Well, you could. Agents can break our code to smithereens. How Kafka? Please, oh please. Says, this is section I, um, says, um, Ephraim, whereupon the cup went dead. And since then, no response, hard as we've tried. Now, the cup went dead. Um, What's that a little bit of a play on what usually goes dead? The phone. The phone goes dead. Yeah, people too. But the phone, yeah. Whereupon the line went dead or the phone went dead. Can the
1: cup go dry too or
0: something? A cup can go dry, yeah.
1: That's not an idiomatic expression. No, not quite. But
0: it is, um, remember if you rinse the cup with rum for Hans, only his eyes burn. As at this moment, do my own, says J.M. At any rate, the cup went dead means it's not moving. So they say, oh, how Kafka. Please, oh, please, says Ephraim. And then they have their hands on the cup, but nothing happens. Um, Earlier... Ephraim has complained about Simpson wasting, at our cup, precious long-distance minutes. Don't hang up. So um, the idea that the cup is the replacement of the telephone is that's something we've already looked at. Now strangers to the village, did we even have a telephone? Who needed one? We had each other for communication and all the rest. But now the cup has gone dead. So whereupon the cup went dead and since then no response hard as we've tried and so I just thought I'd winding up lamely. So who says and so I just thought I'd jam jam to Tom to Tom his ex-shrink winding up lamely. Quite the doctor said exuding insight. There's a phrase you may have heard for what you and David do we call folie a deux which means what? Yeah, so it basically means when two people um, have the same crazy. Um, The idea of codependency comes out of this, but it's like um, here's a person with crazy ideas, and oh no, their spouse has the same crazy ideas. Uh, They're not giving each other reality checks quite the reverse. It's called love. Um, Yeah. So there's a phrase you may have heard for what you and David do, we call folia de, harmless, but... Can you find no simpler ways to sound each other's depths of spirit than taking literally that epigram of wild, <laughs> I'm getting damn tired of my best patience parrot? Um, so, <laughs> what do we think of Tom? He exudes insight. A dick. He's, re- he's, <laughs> he's really dick. Pe- he's really pedantic. <laughs> he's really pedantic. What about the fact that he calls, he, it, notice the, the, the lovely little compliment to JM, my best patience? Yeah. Don't you want your shrink to say, well, you know, you're one of my best patients. Um yeah. It's also weird that he's his ex shrink. Yeah. Because he's still, he still going to
1: Well, <laughs> well maybe he, not after this <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, now he's his ex shrink. As as yeah. No, but he was his ex shrink then, but then some the presumably um he finds love with DJ, he quits having um psychotherapy or psychoanalysis. Um but now the cup goes dead with Ephraim, which means that something that he and DJ have been doing together, nothing happens. So he goes to see Tom, um, and Tom exudes insight and says, "Yes, you're one of my best patients." Um, and um, then he says, "But can you find no other way of sounding each other's depths, to sound each other's depths of spirit?" So what's Ephraim, according to Tom? What is Ephraim? Yeah, or to go deeply into each other to sound each other's depths of spirit.
1: Okay, but to to verify my uh, opinion of the book, that you need to have the ambiguity for it to be
0: yeah. the most meaningful possible. Yeah,
1: Tom, who completely writes off any possibility of it being real and just says it's just it's just something in your psyche, it's just something wrong with right you that makes him be there. It's yeah, a complete cheapening. Right. of the story. Yes, good. So if you buy into Tom's insight here, you you've cheapened the book.
0: Right, good, that. nice, <clears throat> nicely argued. So the, that epigram of Wilde, I'm getting damn tired of hearing my best patient's parrot. Who, which Wilde? Oscar. Oscar. Yeah. And so the epigram is um, J.M. starts quoting it. Given a mask, you mean, will tell. What? How would that end? I have no idea. The truth. The truth. Oh. Yeah. The epigram is given a mask, will tell the truth. Um, so, is Ephraim a way for us to tell the truth? Um, do we have to... Is he a mask that we put on in order to tell the truth? I um, just want to see whether this is... Um, I think it's not, but give me just one sec. Um, it's going to be... No, I'm pretty sure it's Dave's of 1935. Um... Um, There's another poem of Merrill's. It's Days of 1964, that's the poem, which ends with the line, um, and she and, um, she was masked as who was not in something in love. Okay, so given a mask, you mean we'll tell. Tom nodded. So the truth was what we heard. So that tells you, if you didn't know the epigram, that tells you that it ends with the truth. So given a mask, you mean we'll tell. Tom nodded. So the truth was what we heard. A truth, he shrugged, it's hard to speak of the truth. Now suppose you spell it out. What underlies these odd inseminations by psycho roulette? Um, so what else does Ephraim stand for then? Ways of telling the truth, odd inseminations by psycho roulette? What does that mean? Um, their way of having a child. Their way of having a child, their way of having some kind of um, mind fucking—that's um, a French term. Um, it's, it's just like fart means wax in German. Um, I did not know that. Now you know. Um, in in uh, the Renaissance poetry class, I taught the um, wonderful poem whose whose most important couplet is. I'll bring the poem in. It's worth it. Um, so Odd Inseminations by Psycho Roulette, yeah, there's some kind of um, not physical but mental sex going on um, with, its, with randomness, a kind of strange threesomeness about it. Um, both of them remember that DJ will be jealous of JM and Ephraim at one point. Um, so it's all Freud very famously said that he's used to seeing all sexual relations as occurring between four people. Um, That is, the two people who are actually physically having sex and um, the two people that each of them are thinking about. Yeah. um, But in that case, in in specific, the parental figures that they're thinking about. they their
1: mothers. So so for them, it would be, yeah. Shouldn't that be six?
0: No, because you're only thinking about the one parent, according to Freud, that you're thinking about. That would just be disgusting. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So. so that would partly be the spin spin the wheel and see, see where it goes. Um, what is, um, what did I read right over and that we all missed? What crucial word in the stanza beginning, given a mask? Truth. No, that we didn't, that we paid attention to. Yeah? Spell. 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 Why? Yeah. Yeah, so suppose you spell it out," says Tom. "What does that make Ephraim?"
1: Yeah.
0: Sorry. But it makes Ephraim just something that he made up. Um. Well, well. Spelling it out because Ephraim would not be spelling it out if that was real. Okay. Ephraim doesn't exist. That he's spelling it out himself. Yeah. Okay. Good. But Tom is saying, "Suppose you spell out what?" When someone says you spell it out, what are they really saying? It spell out. it out explain. explain what who is thinking Come on spell it out Spell out what I am thinking If someone tells you to spell something out they're basically get they're saying to you figure out what it is that's in my mind and I will basically tell you warm or cold right so can you spell out what I'm thinking then? That you want us to...
1: Warmer? F- ...figure out... That. W- ...that um,
0: the doctor wants J.M. to figure out that... Um, eh, yeah, a little colder. That by spelling something out... That by spelling something out, he's going to... Realize. Um, ...realize that Ephraim is... Now realize what the doctor is thinking... thinking. So that an agent or a figure, an authority figure, makes a patient spell stuff out, and what the patient will then spell out is what the authority figure wants the patient to understand, which means that Ephraim is just like No, it's J M who's spelling things out, which is what he and DJ have uh, been doing throughout. Yes. So who else is Ephraim? Well he's their shrink. Tom is their ex shrink, or at least JM's ex shrink. Whereas Ephraim is their current shrink. That is a figure who understands them, who goes really deep into their psyches, who gets what it's like to be a psyche so let's just say I mean stipulate not in the vulgar Tom like sense that Ben is objecting to but in some larger sense that all the different things Ephraim can be um, all the th- are all the different things that JM and DJ need or want him to be and one of the things he is is their union another thing he is is communication between them their telephone you could say Um, To each other Another thing that he is Is their child Another thing that he is Is their muse That is the um, figure who Um um, allows them to be to say how they feel in a set of quasi-grammatical constructions. Another thing he is is their is their psychoanalyst. Yeah. Well, if you read the next line, yes. it's also their father. It's also, it's okay. The Good. Right. So suppose you spell it out. What underlies these odd inseminations by psycho roulette? I stared, then saw the light. Somewhere a father figure shakes his rod at sons who have not sired a child. So yeah. Um, so again, classic psychoanalysis, um, which is something that people don't really think in these terms anymore, that is, everyone thinks in Freudian terms about how the mind works, but, um, psychoanalysis is not a familiar part of our culture anymore, but the classic idea in psychoanalysis is, um, I mean, do, how much do people know about psychoanalysis? Has anyone had it, done it? Any of your parents had or done it? Sort of? Um. Well, so the basic idea in psychoanalysis is uh, why it's curative as opposed to why it gives you insight. Those are not necessarily connected. That is, you can have insight into plenty of um, pathologies that you might suffer without that insight helping you in any way. I have a bum knee. I think about my bum knee. It doesn't help. Um, But the idea in psychoanalysis is that somehow knowing the source of, what is um, wrong, finding out the source of it by itself is going to help. And that is a strange um, claim or a strange insight or a strange result, depending on how you feel about the evidence for the therapeutic properties of psychoanalysis. But the theory is this, that that analysts are supposed to maintain what is called analytic cool or analytic distance. Um, In psychoanalysis, it's not like any other kind of psychotherapy. Um, The analyst is not particularly your friend in psychoanalysis. What the analyst does is simply asks you questions and doesn't respond to your answers um, in in an engaged way in any way that you're used to when you talk to friends or enemies or whatever. The analyst keeps asking. Um, and is supposed to maintain what's called analytic neutrality. And what happens in the course of an analysis is you start thinking of your analyst as messing with you in just the way your parents messed with you at their worst. And, but you might also start loving your analyst. What Freud noticed first was that, um, that both his and his friend Breuer's patients, um, uh, and they were all female, Um, they wanted to marry them. Um, And um, if you've ever had a crush on a doctor, that's um, a version of what Freud is talking about. It's called the transference. And so what happens is you kind of transfer all your early childhood issues with your parents. You repeat them with your analyst, who's an authority figure who won't give you what you want. And... um, then you become aware, it comes to consciousness, how your parents are still um, overshadowing you because the analyst is a kind of stand-in for them. So when JM says, you don't have to believe any of this, it's just you have to see the structure of what's happening here. I mean, I do believe it, but you don't have to. The structure of what's happening here is that when JM says, somewhere a father figure shakes his rod at sons who have not sired a child, that father figure is whom Tom is now replacing so that somewhere a father figure, Ephraim or maybe the authorities themselves is shaking a rod um, at gay children. Um, Shaking his rod is um, a kind of strange way of punishing a boy for being gay um, by threatening that boy with some sort of image of um, of male-on-male homoerotic and sadistic violence um, at sons who have not sired a child. So we're in trouble. He's shaking his rod at us because we're in trouble because we didn't have a child. So that's what's all going on, and Tom himself is making them understand it this way. Um, so Ephraim is an analyst who's replacing, but therefore is a metaphor for the father who is angry at these boys for being gay. Notice it's two boys, one father. So it's almost there's there's um, a sense that Ephraim is standing for both their fathers, um, and a way which he will in the novel also, by the way or that is to say in the novel um, both their fathers get compressed into one figure um, figuring out what happens in the novel is really hard and we're not going to spend much time doing it um, but um, um, if you look again at um, section D or you don't have to look I'll just tell you um, um, Matt Prentice. is he actually in this? Um, no, uh, Mary Foglesong Jackson is in it um, Matt Prentiss, that is um, the husband of Lucy Prentiss who is based on Mary Foglesong Jackson Matt Prentice is based on both Charles Merrill and on David Jackson's father um, So here's a figure in the novel based on both their fathers come together as a single person So Ephraim somehow is either a father figure or another son figure having the father shake a rod at him why? Because they're gay and they're being made, they're being rebuked by this and they internalized that rebuke at least by having um, the cup go dead because agents may break their coat to smithereens. That is, they may not sire a child. So I stared and saw the light somewhere. A father figure shakes his rotted sons who have not sired a child. Through our own spirit, we can both proclaim and shuffle off the blame for how we live. So we're proclaiming it, here's our spirit, and we can also shuffle off the blame. Um, he's, he goes silent um, and we're being punished so it's all fine. That good enough? Tom smiled and rose. I've heard worse. Those thyroid pills, you still use them, don't. And keep in touch. What's the joke there? Keep in
1: touch with the spirits. Right,
0: keep in touch. I walked out into much guilt-obliterating sunlight. So he felt a lot better after seeing Tom. So does he take Tom's advice, and do they stop with the odd inseminations by psycho roulette? Of course not. No, suddenly everyone's back. Freud, who we learned that evening, despairs of his disciples. So what's happened? Everyone comes back. Everyone I don't comes back. To to that guy. Yeah, he and he totally—it's like that scene <laughs> in Annie Hall. Everyone knows the famous. Have you seen Annie Hall? Do you know the scene I'm thinking of? No, Suppose you spell it out. No, you have seen it, or you haven't? I have Okay, so Woody, the Woody Allen figure in Annie Hall is talking to Diane Keaton. They're at um, what was actually my very famous movie theater, my neighborhood movie theater when I grew up in New York, the New Yorker movie theater, waiting in line for some art house movie. And um, I do remember this. Scene. You can so, it. <laughs> so Woody Allen is explaining, as men do to women in the mid-70s, mm-hmm. to Diane Keaton, what the intellectual truth is about the work of Marshall McLuhan, who, do people know who he is? Um, he's the person who first did this, he, he, he did this amazing analysis of TV. Um, he's one of the great, great cultural theorists of the 20th century, and his most famous um, nomic message is, the medium is the message. Um, and his great book is a book called Understanding Media. It sort of started the whole, um, the whole idea of film and TV and uh, later internet studies. He died about ten years ago. At any rate, so um, Woody Allen is explaining Marshall McLuhan's ideas to Diane Keaton, um, and you know he's sort of sputtering that people don't understand these ideas, but he, Woody Allen, really understands them. Um, and there's a tall guy standing next to them who then turns to Woody Allen and he says, well, I am Marshall McLuhan, and let me tell you, you have got it all wrong. Um, so that's kind of what's happening here. Here's Tom <laughs> giving his opinion, his, his shrewd analytic ideas about what's going on between DJ and JM, like Freud. and boy, do they go over Tom's head because Freud despairs of his disciples. Freud says, Tom, God, what is wrong with him? he's my disciple. That's the best I can do. Yeah. the little thyroid thing, is that like an implication that he's just hallucinating? No, I think it's just the kind of thing doctors always say to you when they wind up, you know, it's like everything. So, I mean, it's a typical, um, doctor thing to reassure you, which is, yeah, you've been living on these pills. Actually, you don't need them anymore, you know, and it's casual. It makes casual things that people worry about. It's a, it's a kind of, it's a nice little medical technique. Um, and you always feel better when a doctor tells you to stop using something you're using, um, that you kind of feel ambivalent about anyhow. So it's, uh, that, that's just, I, don't, I wouldn't make much of that. Okay. I think it's just a gesture. Um, so Freud despairs of his disciples and says, bitte nie zu aufgeben, the key to your own natures. That's as good as their German gets, remember? Um, uh, anyone know? Please never give up the key to your own natures. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's about as much German as um, as DJ can muster, presumably. Um, we felt clouds disperse on all sides. Our beloved friend was back with us. We'd think some other time about the hour with Tom. Nonchalance that would extend, would gradually extend over a widening area. And then the passage that we looked at. Um, the... Um, thing I think just quickly worth looking at is Maya's dream and we'll, we'll continue with this on Monday, but just start with section M. Um, so far what we, we now have various things that Ephraim is standing for all at the same time. Their child, their love, their union, their way of communicating with each other, their way of sounding each other's depths of spirit, their analyst, their parent. Um, their um, sense of being together, um, They are approving good parent rather than the evil parent who is shaking a rod at them. And then Maya has a dream. Maya in the city has a dream. Here's her dream. People in evening dress move through a blaze of chandeliers, white orchids, silver trays dense with bubbling glassfuls, Suavities of early talking pictures Although no word is spoken Such a great line Mm. Suavities of early talking pictures So 1930s parties in 1930s movies Um, Although no word is spoken One she seems to know has joined her Radiant with his wish to please She is a girl again His fire-clear eyes turning her Beautiful, limber, wise Except that she alone wears mourning weeds that weigh unbearably. So she's all in black, wearing more morning weeds. Weeds is a word for clothing, um, and usually used for morning, um, morning kind of clothing. It's, a, it's not weeds as in things that grow in profusion. Um, that weigh unbearably until he leads her to a spring or source. Oh, wonder in whose shining depths her gown turns white, her jet to diamonds and black veil to bridal snow. Her features are unchanged, yet her pale skin is black with glowing nostrils. A not-yet-printed self. So that's all bringing up the idea of the negative. Then it is time to go. Long trials, his eyes convey, must intervene before they meet again. A first, last kiss and fade out. Dream, she wakes from it in bliss. So what does that turn out to mean? Well, we'll continue on Monday. That's the next line. So what does that turn out to mean? Um, All right, finish it for Monday, okay? And um, have a good weekend.